This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hey, very good morning to you. Since the inspectorate is all over the news at the moment, we will be looking at passages from a Victorian book about the HMI back in the early 1900s. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. A very good morning to you. It is Saturday the 17th of June 2023. We are in a very, very cloudy, potentially thunderstormy Gloucestershire today. Um, It has been an odd week in terms of the weather. This is, of course, your regular Saturday morning weather update, just in case you're interested in how the weather in Gloucestershire has been over the week. We started on Monday with the most severe thunderstorm I ever remember. Um, We don't really get thunderstorms here, not particularly regularly, Um, and at least not ones that last for very long. It's usually maybe one clap of thunder, one bolt of lightning, and then some rain. Um, But Monday afternoon was torrential. It actually got quite scary in some parts with the amount of thunder that was going. And it wasn't the regular rolling thunder that we have. It was proper full-on claps of thunder, which I quite enjoyed. And then that gave way over the rest of the week to blazing heat and sunshine. Um, We were at 21 degrees this time yesterday. Um, I remember checking because I was with my year 10 class and we were talking about weather. Um, And so we were kind of making predictions in French about, you know, if it's 21 degrees at nine o'clock in the morning, then what temperature do we think it's going to be by lunchtime to practice the future tense? And so so that was quite interesting. Um, so yeah, we have had blazing sunshine ever since, but now we are back to clouds. Uh, my computer was predicting more thunder and lightning today. It's now changed, so it just says mostly cloudy. Um, but we are at a relatively cool 15 degrees. I still think that's very warm for nine o'clock in the morning. But uh, but that's where we are right now. I do appreciate this break in the sun. Um, I've talked on the show before about how the incessant sunlight does affect my mood. So I do like when uh, when we get some overcast, cast, when we get some shadows going on, it's much more interesting, in my opinion. We've made it to the end of week two. Congratulations. (laughs) Um, I've got three more weeks to go. I think we are going to have a a countdown to summer at this point. Um, So I've got three full weeks um, left of school, which is quite nice. Uh, It does mean, of course, that we only have three... 
Saturday morning breakfasts together before I take a hiatus in July while I go off on my summer holiday. So we've got this week, next week, and the following, and then July the 8th, um, I will be, this time on July the 8th, I will be at Heathrow Terminal 3. So we are going to make the most of um, of these three Saturday mornings that we have together. And then, of course, the plan is to be back in August, um, but I will keep you updated on how that goes. You can, if you want to keep up with how the plans for future Saturday morning breakfasts are going, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Mr. D. Lester, or one word, that's M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R. And you can use my tag for engaging in any of the conversations that we have here on Saturday morning breakfast. Uh, I'm always happy to, to talk to people, to hear different points of view. So if you are listening live, and um, you are not on the Podbean app and you want to interact with any of the stuff that we talk about today, please do tweet me. If you are listening on the replay, please do also tweet me. I will happily engage no matter where we are. It might be 2033, wherever you are listening to me prattling on from the past. (laughs) But you can still engage. You can still chat. I am happy with that. If you are listening via Podbean, if you are live and listening via Podbean, we have got a few people in the studio, then you are, of course, welcome to text in and engage. I am always, always happy to hear from you. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners regardless of their background, ability, or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Telegraph reported this week on calls from some academics for schools to ban smartphones. The article refers to devices as extremely dangerous over fears that they damage cognitive ability. The research by academics in Australia suggests that phones can be hazardous to children as they have a negative effect on learning, social skills and mental health. Dr Mark Williams, an honorary professor of cognitive neuroscience at Macquarie University in Sydney, is quoted as saying that having a phone in a pocket or bag decreases working memory capacity and that this means children don't learn as well. He goes on to say that there are zero benefits to smartphones in schools. 
Dr Williams went on to add that other research studies have shown that smartphones also link to causes of depression, anxiety and body dysmorphia. In Spain, phones have been banned from schools in some regions since 2015. University of Valencia academics found that pupils' test scores in some core subjects improved. In the USA, researchers at an Ohio hospital found that screen time led to lower brain functioning, and a study in Malaysia published in 2020 found that the presence of a smartphone decreased the ability of undergraduates to accurately recall information. The current Department for Education and Advice in England is that head teachers are best placed to make decisions about phones and their use in school. The value of learning a foreign language is often discussed in schools, but in Germany, there have been calls for primary schools to scrap English lessons. The president of the German Teachers Association has said that schools should focus on German reading and maths instead. His remarks come as German students scored lower than their peers in other countries in the International Primary School Reading Survey. Heinz-Peter Meidinger told German broadcasters that focusing on English was a wrong priority and that more attention should be paid to reading skills, writing skills and arithmetic. The BBC reports that MPs have launched an inquiry into Ofsted school inspections looking at how useful they are to parents, governors and schools in England. Education Select Committee Chairman Robin Walker said Ofsted had an important role, but that there had been a groundswell of criticism in recent months. Ofsted itself has said it welcomed the inquiry, but that it had already made changes. MPs will consider how inspections affect the workload and well-being of school staff and pupils and what contribution its reports make to helping schools improve. The issues likely to be discussed are the current system of awarding one overall grade to a school and whether it is right to deem a school inadequate if inspectors raise concerns about child welfare. Parents, school governors, teachers and unions will be able to submit evidence alongside the government and Ofsted itself. Ofsted have already made changes, particularly to the complaints process, but the NAHT's Paul Whiteman said the changes didn't go far enough. Finally, in the West Midlands, the BBC reports that a 91-year-old former teacher is helping children develop their literacy skills from a living room. Diane Idols has five pupils she reads with over an online platform aimed at helping children progress with reading. She said the volunteering work had filled a huge hole in her life after the death of her husband. Mrs Idols volunteers through the Bookmark Reading Charity, which matches trained volunteers with primary children struggling with reading. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to answer the question we all want to know. What is the best presentation software? I do promise to give you an answer this week after leaving you on a cliffhanger, but 
First, a quick recap for those who missed last week or fast-forwarded me. Considering most lessons delivered in a classroom contain some sort of presentation, it's possible that our students are facing up to a thousand presentations a year. This isn't a bad thing as we are presenting information and that's what the software is designed to do. However, like a display you spend ages on, how long does it take before it stops being noticed? Do we really know what experience a pupil gets through a typical week in school? Are they being engaged or do they know how to look like they are listening? Don't worry, there is no way I'm going to mention slants here if you're thinking that is where I was going next. The answer is there is no best presentation software. As I've already mentioned, there are lots of free and paid for presentation apps out there. The key to success is which one do you choose? This is where a lot of people go wrong. They ask someone else's opinion. What works for one may not work for another. The choice you make depend on two key words, purpose and audience. When you choose the method of presentation for a lesson, you need to be thinking about the best way to grab focus. In the end, our job is to encourage long-term remembering. So if the lesson is about remembering short text-based facts and you have powerful images that back up what you're saying, a looping PowerPoint presentation or equivalent may do the job. Do you want to embed a lot of web links and videos? Why not take a look at Wakelet, a free way to collect web links together and share them. You can present with it and then hand the link off for self-discovery. Most app developers today aim to make their apps intuitive. So changing things around shouldn't be too hard for you to get to grips with. And you may just find engagement rises. And in the end, that's what it's all about. What do you do to engage pupils? Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. I would be interested to read those studies that Joe referred to on the use of the smartphone, um, because a couple of things jumped out to me as Joe was summarising them there in the news. First of all is the assertion that having a phone in a pocket or bag reduces um, the, the cognitive ability, the ability for the students to recall and remember. Now, to me, that seems very, very simple. That, that seems oversimplified because the mere presence of a phone can't do that. There, there is no, as far as I know, I'm not a biologist, I will hand, hold my hands up, but as far as I am aware, there is nothing kind of in your leg nerves that will be picking up the phone in the pocket and interfering with what is going on in your head. So that means that the, um, the lowered cognitive function must come from the distraction, which I can get on board with. So to me, it would make sense not to say that it's bad for students to have a smartphone in their pocket. We probably shouldn't be arguing that, um, that having the phone on them is a bad thing. It's the distraction of the phone that is the bad thing. Um, and again, this is not me um, critiquing Joe's summary, I'm, I'm critiquing the um, assertions being put forward about smartphones, because we've all heard these. We've all heard people say children should not have phones in school because it stops them concentrating. And, and that's not the case. It is not the phone that physically stops the, the child concentrating. It is what is done with the phone. It's the, the distraction of the phone. I'm also going to go ahead and assert that the conclusion from one of the studies that Joe summarised, the idea that there are no benefits to having a smartphone in school is wrong. Um, 
Now, I'm very lucky because I work in a one-to-one -one device school. So my students are required to have a smart device, um, not their phone, but a laptop, a, a tablet, an iPad uh, as part of their school equipment. And I will say that it has completely changed my my practice, my teaching for the better, because there are so many tools that I now have access to that I can incorporate into my lesson because students have access to a device. We can do, you know, very simple things. Steve asked in Two Minute Tech, how do you engage and motivate students? And for as much as I've met many teachers who don't like them, gaming platforms such as um, uh, such as Kahoot, such as Quizlet, such as Blookit are very good for motivating students. And if they are used effectively, they can help with long-term retention of, of facts, of vocabulary, of grammar points, of whatever it might be that you are teaching. If you don't have access to a device, those things are taken away. As a languages teacher, I want my students to have as much exposure to real life use of the language as possible. And it used to be, before COVID, it was that we would have to take it in turns, all nine of us, or 11 of us as it was back then in department, to book our students into the language lab to get them onto a computer so that they could go on to Laradout and have a look at what online shopping in French is like. But now I don't have to do that because I can sit in my classroom, regardless of which classroom I'm in, regardless of which set of students I have, and I have access to all of that realia straight away. I no longer need to go to Germany myself or wait for my native speaker head of department to go back home to Austria in order to get access to um, newspapers in German. We can do that straight away through the student smart device. Now, schools that don't have a one-to-one -one device policy can pretty much rely on the fact that a student will have a phone. And of course, there are ethical issues surrounding asking students to use their personal devices for schoolwork. Um, we had a big discussion about that um, during COVID at my school, uh, particularly for the students who ended up not having a device of their own at that point. We talked a lot about whether we could ask students, ask parents to download specific apps onto personal devices, onto phones, onto their own computers even, um, in order to give them access to what we needed them to have. But, but having the phone there does open up a whole world of, of, of learning to the students. And, you know, I obviously don't want to dismiss these studies without having read them. Uh, these studies have been conducted by very educated people, people who are leaders in their field, uh, and I will be really interested to hear what they have to say. <clears throat> but I quite often, when we get these criticisms of technology in the classroom, I quite often wonder how much of it is a, a, a backlash, um, a, a case of this isn't how it was done when I was at school, and so it's not how it should be done now which does happen quite a lot in our profession, let's be honest, let's be honest. Um, and the other thing on this, before I move on to the one that is more in my wheelhouse, um, is that if we're saying that students are spending too much time on 
uh, screens, if we're saying that we need to reduce screen time, does that include our smart board? Because my smart board is a screen. Um, I'm saying smart board not as the brand name. We are not sponsored. Uh, I am using that as the generic term in the same way that you might ask for some sellotape. <laughs> but my, my smart board actually in my classroom, it it isn't one. It is just a screen. It doesn't have any touchy-feely interactive features. Um, it is just a display screen. The same as on my computer, the same as on my phone, uh, the same as my TV at home. And I, I think... I think if we are saying that we need to limit student screen time, but we are not referring to our boards, we are only referring to the stuff that they enjoy using, if we are only referring to the way in which they choose to spend their free time, then we're actually not saying that students need to reduce their screen time at all. We're saying that we need to have more control over how they express themselves, how they entertain themselves. And that's a whole different conversation um, and quite possibly a dangerous conversation to be had. There are dangers of smart devices, of course, you know, we all know that it's necessary to be 13 years old in order to sign up for social media accounts but we also all know the year sixes at 11 and 12 who are on tiktok um, we all know the year threes who are doing tiktok dances in the playground it it happens it happens and we do need to be careful of this we need to be mindful of this we need to educate our children effectively so that they are aware of the dangers of online platforms but we kind of have to accept that this is how the world is working. This is the world that our A-level students are going to university into. They will be expected to be able to use their own personal devices for their studies. When they go out to work, they will be expected to be proficient in office software. And if we ignore that, and if we pretend it's not happening, we're just giving them, doing them a disservice, really. We're kind of setting them up to fail, which is not what we are for. The big one, of course, and the one that I have even more opinions about, was when Joe mentioned about Germany suggesting that it needs to stop English lessons um, in primary school. Now, I have conflicting emotions on this because, of course, like I said last week, I really should listen to the news in advance so that I can get my thoughts together when I've got these strong opinions on things. Um, on the one hand, I'm going to agree with Germany that actually English maybe is not the language that should be being taught. Um, English is, of course, becoming less important on the world stage. English is on a par right now with Spanish in terms of its use in the USA. And lots of linguists project that the USA will become a predominantly Spanish-speaking country, uh, certainly within my lifetime. And with the after effects of Brexit, English is becoming less important within Europe. Um, there are very few countries in Europe that speak English as a first language. Uh, at the moment, of course, there are more countries that speak it as a second because it was being taught in schools when the UK was part of the EU 
and so it was an important language to learn. But actually, as I point out to my students, German is the language of business, of engineering, of science. We've got French as one of the biggest languages in the EU. And of course, we've got Spanish, which is not a language that I speak, but is a language that is becoming increasingly important on the world stage, particularly given its increased prevalence in the USA. So I'm not surprised that um, that German teachers are beginning to look at English and go, well, actually, is this worth our time? Because in some cases, they might turn around and say no, in the same way that many schools, when looking at their MFL timetable, decided to prioritise French and Spanish over German in the UK. On the other hand, do I think that they are right to be saying that we're going to take foreign language lessons out of primary school? My answer to that is absolutely not. Um, I don't believe that there is an age limit on learning a foreign language. Um, I do believe that the sooner you start learning a foreign language and the, the sooner you are exposed to foreign languages, the better. Because I do believe that as the brain is developing, if you have that exposure to other languages, then that will retain, that will remain. And so your brain will have those neural pathways in order to pick up other languages later on. Um, but I believe that that's relatively generic. And this belief is based purely on my own experience. Um, I was in my 30s, my early 30s, but my 30s when I started to learn Mandarin. Um, and I became fluent in Mandarin within six months. Um, I already had backgrounds in Asian languages, so it was a relatively easy language for me to pick up. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, that blows out of the water this idea that there is any age limit on learning a language, that if you don't learn a language when you are 16, then you will never learn one. Um, and so I don't think it's it's necessary to learn a language when you are four years old in order to speak that language forever, and that's the only one that you pick. But I do think it's important in primary education to get children learning foreign languages so that they know how and so that their brain develops those neural pathways in order to pick up other languages. Uh, that, I think, is the most important thing in primary MFL. So, is English a good language for students of non-English speaking countries to learn in primary school? Yes, because it is still very prevalent. It's still very easy for primary age children to access English language TV shows, uh, to access American films. Um, American culture is still considered to be very cool in parts of Europe. And so it's something that children can relate to. It, it's something that children can aspire to. As a language, English is actually very easy. Um, our phonics are a bit strange. Our morpheme to phoneme mapping is a bit strange. So we don't always spell words as they sound. But our grammar is actually very, very easy. Our tense system is very easy. 
we have such a wide vocabulary that it's very easy to be able to express yourself because there is always a word that you can pluck from. So I actually think that English is quite a good starter language for people. Um, and I think that even though it is becoming less important in Europe, uh, which coincidentally is why it's very important for native English speaking children to pick up at least one other language. Um, I think it's a good one to be primed on when you're young because it can open up the pathways to some of the more complicated languages. Um, why did I go on a five minute spiel about that? Do I think that the German Minister of Education is listening and is going to change their mind based on my opinions on the Saturday morning breakfast? No, of course not. But this is why we are here. We are teachers, we are engaging, we are giving our opinions on these things. Um, and then we see what will come of that later on. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. I realised this week with kind of Ofsted and the Inspectorate being all over the teaching news once again, that I know very little about the history of school inspection. Um, I am actually interested in the history of schooling. Longtime friends of the show will know that we've done a couple of shows about what education has looked like in Britain um, since 1066. We did that one when we talked about how the royal family have been educated um, back for the coronation. We've talked a bit about, about um, classical education, how in ancient Greece and ancient Rome children were educated. Um, but I, I realised I didn't know very much about how education became regulated um, in Britain. When I was in school, uh, Ofsted was already a thing. I remember being in year three and being told that we were being inspected. Um, you know, we were told that Ofsted were coming, we were told what we had to do, we were told that we had to behave, um, all of that sort of stuff. But kind of that is as far back as my, my knowledge of the history of the inspectorate goes. So I've been doing some research this week, just out of my own interest. I actually wasn't planning on doing a show on this at all. I just wanted to know more. Um, and I found a really interesting book. Now, again, you know that I love books. I am a big reader, or at least I try and be a big reader. I'm not as big a reader as I would like to be. Um, but I found this book called HMI, Some Passages in the Life of One of HM Inspectors of Schools by E.M. Snade Kinnersley. Um, 
and this was originally published in 1908. The first edition is from 1908. Uh, it was reprinted, so it was printed first edition in September 1908. It was reprinted in, sorry, no, it was first edition printed in April 1908. It was reprinted in September 1908. It was printed as a shilling edition in 1910, and then reprinted again in 1913. So it went through four different printings in just five years, which to me suggests that it's a very important book um, in the history of our profession, despite the fact that I'd never heard of it until I started Googling the, the history of the Inspectorate. So the Inspectorate of Education was an executive agency of the Scottish government um, initially that was responsible for inspecting public and private schools, so both of our types of schools. Um, in England now we have two separate inspectorates, so there is Ofsted that does state schools and there is ISI for uh, private schools. Um, but the HMI also was responsible for inspecting further education colleges, community learning, um, LEA departments, and initial teacher training. And so it had a very broad view of what the education uh, field in Scotland looked like. Um, the very first HM Inspector of Schools, so the very first HMI, was appointed in 1840, um, and it was the, the post was created in order to uh, improve elementary education, and the Inspector of Schools was charged to talk about what improvements in the apparatus and internal management of schools, in school management and discipline, and in the methods of teaching have been sanctioned by the most extensive experience. So it was, to me, um, the point was for these people to go in and to see what was working, to see what was good, and then to disseminate that information. So I was really interested to kind of read this book. It is quite a long one. It comes in at, I've actually got a uh, digital copy, so I'm going to check. It comes in at 286 pages. Um, so it is relatively long, but I think it's worth reading. I think it's really interesting. And what I'm going to do is share some passages from it with you today. Some relatively long sections in some places, but the passages that I think um, are most pertinent or most interesting to those of us in our profession. So we're actually going to start at the beginning, because that is a very good place to start, as Lewis Carroll said in Alice in Wonderland. We're going to start with the very first chapter, which talks about how our author um, got into becoming an inspector. Um, what his his plans were, and then we're going to kind of unpick that a little bit afterwards. Chapter 1 of HMI, Some Passages in the Life of One of HM Inspectors of Schools. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, 
please visit LibriVox.org. H.M.I. Some Passages in the Life of One of H.M. Inspectors of Schools by Edmund Mackenzie Sneed Kinnersley The Beginning The man seems following still the funeral of the boy. J. Kebble My first acquaintance with the office of H.M. Inspector of Schools dates as far back as 1854. I was then twelve years old. At breakfast we were informed that the Reverend Henry Sanford was coming on a visit. Who and what is he? I asked. Firstly, he was the son of our neighbor, Archdeacon Sanford. Secondly, he was HMI, that is to say, one of Her Majesty's inspectors of schools. What do they do? Oh, they travel about the country and examine the school children in the national schools. Travel about, I said wistfully. I should like to be an inspector. It was pointed out to me with that frankness which is necessary in dealing with the inquisitive boy that if I wanted traveling, I had better be an engine driver. But I replied, with unconscious sarcasm, that there were certain qualifications needed for the post of engine driver. Thirty years later, bitter experience wrested from me the frequent remark that I did not find my work hard or disagreeable when I was once in school. All that I complained of was the traveling. And there came another curious reminder of the conversation of 1854. One day, in the eighties, I was lunching with a Roman Catholic priest, and among my fellow guests was a much-loved canon who apologized for having omitted his morning shave because he was suffering from neuralgia. And, he added, I have often thought I should like to be a monk, so that I might be at liberty to grow a beard. Being myself a hairy man, I pointed out that inspectors of schools had the same privilege, but the canon promptly retorted that he believed there were certain qualifications necessary for the office of inspector, and he had never heard that there were any required for being a capuchin. This would seem to point to a classification. 1. Engine drivers. 2. Inspectors of schools. 3. Capuchins. From 1854 to 1871, I was not interested in elementary education, though after leaving Oxford, I took some part in classical teaching. The storms of Mr. Lowe's revised code passed over my head and the Elementary Education Bill of 1870 was fought in Parliament while I was sailing home from Australia. The school board elections of November 1870 caused some excitement in the large towns, but the Franco-German War was raging, and the siege of Paris was of more general interest. To the supporters of the government, the new Education Act appeared to be an admirable measure. The opposition maintained the contrary opinion. But as is usually the case, 
the great majority of the people adopted one or the other side without tedious inquiry into details. I think that was my case. In the following year, without any warning, my destiny began to be shaped. About Easter, there came a letter to my father from our old friend of 1854, H. Sanford, who was a cousin of Sir Francis Sanford, secretary of the education department, and had become a senior inspector. He premised that certain officers were to be appointed to make inquiries under the new Education Act, men who had graduated with honors at Oxford or Cambridge, and that the nomination of these was in the hands of the district inspectors. He went on to inquire whether my father had a son with the necessary qualifications. Now, at that time, I was a briefless barrister of something less than two years standing, nearly one of which I had spent in the aforesaid visit to Australia, and the prospect of work with a living wage was alluring. I was assured by my briefless brethren that the solicitors would not miss me, and that they themselves were able and willing to fill the gap. The offer of the appointment was accepted for me, and at the end of April I found myself an inspector of returns. To my extreme delight, I received notice that my work lay in North Wales, Anglesey, Carnarvonshire, Marianith, and about a third of Denbighshire formed the district of my chief, whom I was to assist. I was to begin in May. The pay was good. I was twenty-nine, and in robust health. With such a country, what could a man wish for more? The nature of the work was obscure, but presumably explanations would follow, and credit might be given to the government that the task would be neither dishonorable nor onerous. On an appointed day, we were to attend at the Education Department at 11 a.m. to meet Sir F. Sanford and to receive further instructions. I went accordingly, starting, as I thought, in good time, so that I might not begin with a reputation for unpunctuality. But at Charing Cross, I found that there were but three minutes left and I nervously hailed a hansom to complete the journey. With admirable exactness, I reached the office door at 10.59 and inquired for the secretary. Not come down yet, sir, said the porter. He don't generally get here till half past. I felt that I had found a profession after my own heart. Judges sat at ten, Porter Sessions chairman at nine, and nasty remarks were made if counsel, by the merest chance in the world, happened to be a quarter of an hour late. The cases in which I held briefs, with a fee of one pound, three shillings, six pence, could not contemplate a delay of half an hour. They were not on that scale. Eventually the great man arrived and pleasantly greeted the roomful of novices. We got our instructions and were promised further information. 
In the following week, I began work at Carnarvon. There and in other schools in the district, we spent a few days, partly to teach me the rudiments of schoolwork, partly to arrange a plan of campaign for my special work. It was all new to me, and I could offer no suggestions. But I thought of the poor, briefless ones whom I had left behind me in London, Westminster or Guildhall from ten to four, Temple Chambers for an hour or so, smoking room at the club at night, with some remarks on the Tickborne case, then superseding the Franco-German War as a topic of conversation, and I was more than content with my lot. End of chapter one. Read by Kerry Adams, your book voice, at Mesa, Arizona, on the 28th of June, 2022. What I found particularly interesting in that chapter was our narrator had very little interest in education to begin with. You know, he admits that, um, that it wasn't until he kind of graduated from Oxford and then began teaching with no formal teaching qualification, as far as we know, just subject knowledge, um, that, that he kind of even considered it. And the reason that he wanted to go into being an inspector was to travel. Now, I've known a few inspectors through my career, and they have been teachers first and foremost. In fact, they were senior leaders first and foremost. But they were teachers who happened to be inspectors. Whereas what I think is quite interesting in this case is our protagonist, he set out to be an inspector. And he set out to be an inspector not because he was interested in improving education, though, of course, he had this idea when he was 12 years old. And so it probably didn't occur to him um, to be interested in, in improving education. Um, but he did this purely because he wanted to be able to travel. And so you kind of have to think about what the, the reasoning for inspecting schools is. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that school inspectors get into it just because they want to be able to travel around the country. Um, there are many, many more opportunities these days to be able to travel than to need to take a job in order to do that. Um, but it is quite interesting to kind of consider the reason for inspecting, uh, kind of what inspectorates are looking for, what their role is, and all of the different uh, social, economic, political considerations that go into an inspection uh, that we kind of don't don't think about in our normal practice. Oops. This is teach. I am very sorry about that. I clicked the wrong audio file. Um, you already know that this is Teachers Talk Radio. I have already told you that. We've been here 45 minutes already. Um, we are now going to move on to um, a very interesting chapter. I think one of the most interesting chapters in the book. And it's a chapter that is simply entitled Children, because I think it'd be interesting for us to have uh, an idea of how school children were perceived um, at this point in the history of British education. Section 17 of HMI, some passages in the life of one of HMI inspectors of schools. 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. H.M.I. Some Passages in the Life of One of H.M. Inspectors of Schools by Edmund Mackenzie Snade Kindersley. Children. Children sweeten labors, but they make misfortune more bitter. They increase the cares of life, but they mitigate the remembrance of death. Bacon. Bacon's theory is very sound, and it is one that appeals to both inspectors and teachers. There are times when the essayist labors to be short and becomes obscure, but here his meaning is plain, as is his cipher to the American expert. Children in school are delightful, but if you are mentally worried or physically in poor case, they are very trying. The work of inspecting or teaching takes it out of you, but it is a consolation to think that death will bring you relief. I do not speak without experience. In my first year at Chester, the population of the district was about 205,000, of whom 34,000 should have been at school. In my last year at Manchester, the district comprised about 880,000 people, of whom more than 150,000 were under inspection for the higher grade and higher elementary schools had brought in many more of the lower middle class than used to patronize us. Roughly speaking, I may say that for 32 years I spent five days a week, holidays and extra work accepted, in the study of my ever-increasing flock, their habits, their physical characteristics and connection with education, their morals and manners, if any, their likes and dislikes, their work and their play, in the course of another 32 years, I might have got to know a little about them for the benefit of other searchers and that they may begin where I leave off. I record here a very small fraction of the result of my experiences in school. The physical characteristic side is one of absorbing interest. I have long regretted that I did not give special attention to ears, their influence on an indication of character. There is room for a valuable monograph on this subject. The kindred topic of hair was my special study. I regret that my theories on hair were received with such general incredulity that I shrink from crushing this simple record of facts by introducing matters so debatable. Even the rough conclusions which one formed by noting the size and shape of heads were not wholly acceptable. It is not always easy at first sight of a massive brow, top-heavy for Shakespeare, to decide whether it contains brains or water on the brain. Footnote. Dickens. Little Dorrit. End of footnote. Similarly, I believe in the political world, the man with the swollen head is often mistaken in the earlier days of acquaintance for, but I am going beyond my last. Let us keep to safer ground. It was once pointed out to me that the main feature of American humor is best described by a Greek phrase meaning contrary to expectation. This certainly is the most delightful feature of children, but it is manifest chiefly in their conversation. In most respects, they are the slaves of habit, and their games are the strongest instance of this. 
Of all boys, it may be asserted that, if Socrates were to inquire into their ideas of pleasure, he would reduce them to motion without exertion and something to do with a ball. A wheel and a ball is tempting as a concise summary, but wheel would exclude horse riding, boating, skating, and some other. If it is argued that cycling, skating, and boating connote exertion, I replied that to boys of public elementary school age, the delightful part is the continuous motion which they get by intermittent exertion, and that they will cheerfully drag a bicycle up a steep hill for the sake of the gratuitous descent. This great theory comprehends all English boys from top to bottom of the social ladder. In details, there are points of similarity and of the opposite between the old public schools and the 15,000 public elementary schools. The theory of periodicity is common to both, but in the form of the principle which allots the summer months to cricket or the cult of the lesser ball and the winter to football or the cult of the greater ball is climatic. The little wee-wee balls used for fives, rackets, and tennis are perennial. In our elementary schools also, there is a law of seasons, but I have never been able to formulate it, and I know of no reason for the alternations. At one time, all the boys played tip-cat, which Shakespeare would call a dreadful trade. A crusty old bachelor says, it counts fifty if you break a window and it is game if you put out one eye of a passerby. This apocryphal rule one is the only one promulgated. At another season, hoops are de rigueur. At another, marbles. These recreations are little known in the playing fields of Eton, where the Battle of Waterloo was won. The girls have skipping ropes, less deadly than tip-cat, but very injurious to the bridge of the nose, or the best hat of the peaceful passenger. And they have jacks, alias skipjacks, knucklebones, astragaloi. I think hopscotch, which drives the passers-by, onto the high road to be juggernauted by mulgers, is common to both sexes. The pursuit of a football, or any chief's ferroidal substitute, is perennial for boys. In this rotation of games, then, there is resemblance of a sort, but there is a lamentable dissimilarity in the spirit of the gamesters. Our elementary boy has hardly the most elementary idea of schoolboy honor. He begins with the loathsome practice of telling tales, not to be named among Christians. A tells tales of B, not because he hates wrong or loves rules, but to raise his own value in the eyes of the common enemy. This is to put self above the common good. From this beginning, he easily arrives at the deadly vice of the working class, the incapacity for playing fair and for playing without quarreling. When they are boys, their cricket and football are one long wrangle. When they grow up, they not only buy and sell contests, they even attempt the life of the umpire, who should be sacrosanct as the herald. And from this blunted sense of honor comes another abominable habit. First among boys, they ask a boon, some special indulgence perhaps, and obtain it on special terms of doing or abstaining from doing something else. 
But when the boon is granted, they have no scruple whatever about breaking the conditioned precedent. Hence comes one of the ugliest features of trade disputes, the incapacity for keeping a bargain. Here, as I said, they are the slaves of habit. It is in their speech that the unexpectedness triumphs, and the younger the child, the more unexpected are his remarks. Many an inspector, many a teacher, has been reduced to utter confusion by these random shots. It was one of my own staff who came to grief in a country school in this way. He had been examining Standard 2 in the multiplication table, and the village idiot was in the class. They dealt with fair success with the simpler problems, and Mr. Rackham was emboldened to soar higher. How much is eleven twelves? he asked, and there was none to answer. He put it in a more searching way. Who knows how much is eleven twelves? And the village idiot answered, God. That being the generally accepted answer to difficult questions couched in that form. In another country school, I met a boy who, by reason of his wit, and his wits was the joy of the rector's heart. He was in standard three, age about nine. I gave him an arithmetic card containing, among others, the question, how much would one million penny postage stamps cost? George took the contract with a friendly grin and in due time intimated that he had completed it. What do you make of the stamps, George? I asked. Is it 4,166 pounds, 13 shillings, 4 pennies? Yes, that is right, and I marked his paper. George grinned a larger grin and remarked confidentially as he sat down again. That come to a deal more nor what I care to give for un. When Mr. Bultitude, in vice versa, was given bills of parcels to do, he was, disgusted as a businessman by the glaring improbabilities of their details. George took the same view. A colleague tells of a similar rebuff. He was examining in mental arithmetic and took pains to adapt his questions to local industries. Picking out a big lad, he asked, What does your father do? Caught your salmon in the river. Capital. You will be able to do this sum. Twenty pounds of salmon at three pennies a pound. What is that worth? Twenty pounds of salmon at three pennies? Yeah, that wouldn't be worth a dime. I think this is what logicians call ignoratio elenchi. Still more unexpected was the reply that demolished the present truthful chronicler in an infant school. The mistress was giving a lesson on an elephant. It was in the days when etiquette forbade that the subject of the lesson should be directly announced to the class. It had to be approached by artful devices. Therefore, she began with a question. What is the largest animal in the world? Chorus, an elephant teacher. Mistress, yes, quite right. This heresy shocked me but etiquette again forbade that I should contradict her. Yet, for matches of amica veritas, I might and did interpose a question. Which is the beggar, an elephant or a whale? Chorus, a whale. The mistress looked scornfully at me and returned the oblique shot. 
Is a whale an animal, children? Chorus, no, teacher. Mistress, what is a whale, children? Chorus, a fish. I was roused to more defense of truth, though tacitly accepting the fishhood of whales. Isn't a fish an animal, children? Chorus, sarcastically, no. Is a girl an animal? Chorus, no. Is a girl a vegetable? Do you grow them in a garden like cabbages? Chorus, no. Is a girl a mineral? Do you dig them out of a mine like coals? Chorus, no. Now I seem to have the landing net ready. If a girl is not an animal, nor a vegetable, nor a mineral, what is a girl? The first and second classes felt the horns of the trilemma, and they were silent. But a boy, aged four or so, rose from his seat in the third class and in strident tones supplied the crushing answer. Who's a winch? I fled into the next room. Another story of discomfiture, more touching because the discomfited one had not provoked her fate, comes to memory. The scene was a Sunday school. The suffering lady had hurried down on a sultry afternoon and found her class unusually anemic. She toiled womanfully, in spite of heat and consequent torpor, and it was not till she was faint with exertion that she seemed to detect a spark of interest. There was a low mutter, and she cheered up, as a fisherman does when after hours of nothingness he feels a timid bite. That is right, Mary dear, speak up, what did you say? What your face... She never smiled again in a Sunday school. They spared neither age nor sex, and even the lookers-on might be overwhelmed. This was the case at a school managed by a worthy vicar, whose most devoted ministrations were so little acceptable to his flock that his congregation had dwindled down almost to the point specified by Professor Henry J.S. Smith of Oxford. The attendance at Professor Z's lectures might be counted on the thumbs of two hands. That, at least, was the current rumor. I was examining Standard 2, age 8 or 9, in the rudiments of geography, and we came to the word desert, which they defined as a sandy plain where nothing grew. I was anxious to get at the meaning of the word in connection with deserted, and remembering a long, untenanted house at the end of their street, and just below the church, I put it thus. As I was coming here, I saw an empty building, all shut up, where nobody lives, and nobody goes. What should you say that house was? And a fatal boy replied, The house of God. Never before since have I seen a good man so utterly prostrated as was that vicar. If I were bound by chronology, I should keep to the end a comment on my own personal appearance made by a Manchester infant. I was coming out of school at dinner time, and far below me, as I stood on the outer doorstep, I heard a shrill cry of, Hey! There was an exceedingly small boy, aged four or five, gazing up into my sexagenarian face and gray beard. Hello, Tommy. What's the matter with you? I replied. The imp pointed over his shoulder at another infant, smaller and a shade dirtier. 
He said you're old Father Christmas. It was well for Tommy that he did not live in the days of Elijah. Well for Tommy that the she-bears were shut up in the Bellevue Gardens. Not even the diocesan inspectors and religious knowledge are safe. One writes to me, the children have a holiday after the diocesan inspection. Alluding to this yesterday in school, I said, what is the pleasantest part of my visit to you? Answer, that you don't come often. The unexpected remarks were not always humorous. Nay, at times they were intensely pathetic. I once picked up a beautifully clean baby from the front desk and planted her on my knee while the usual lesson on the cow or the camel was droning on. She sat there in perfect content, apparently absorbed in contemplation of her best shoes, worn in honor of the inspection. Suddenly she turned to me and murmured, My daddy's been thumping our baby like anything this morning. Gracious, I said, what had the baby been doing? Nothing, she said, and relapsed into silence. It does not bear comment. It hardly bears thinking of. Less pathetic, perhaps, but yet touching in its way, was a remark reported to me from another infant school. A little boy was gazing at a wall picture of a bear. The mistress asked what he would do if he met a creature like that. I'd run away. But the bear can run ever so quick and he would catch you. The infant pondered on the clumsy-looking beast calculated its rate of speed by some method of his own, and finally replied, He wouldn't, not if I add my mended boots on. A pleasant reminiscence from the same town. It was in the baby's room. I was talking to the mistress, when suddenly a baby made a remark to the class teacher, and both teachers exploded in hastily suppressed laughter. What did the baby say? I asked. She saw you coming in, Mr. Kinnersley, and she said, Is that my daddy? The situation might be embarrassing. Conceive it in a French novel, with the inspector's wife lurking in the doorway. The answers of these infants to their own teachers were a source of endless amusement, and sometimes they were saved up for me. One teacher had been giving a first lesson to her class on some animals. That, she said, in conclusion is what we call natural history, all about birds, beasts, fishes, and insects. I will write it on the board. Natural history. Now can any little girl tell me any fact that she has ever observed in natural history? Anything about a bird or a beast or a fish or an insect? Yes, Mary, that is a good girl. What is it that you observed? Mary, please, teacher. Our baby ate a slug once. Sometimes, too, the teachers would bring us stories of our colleagues and of the unexpected answers given to them. The unconscious humor was often prominent. It was said that one inspector asked, What sort of people do you think they were, who called the most northerly county of Scotland, Sutherlandshire? It may be well to state here that the proper name is Norwegians. And a child answered, Irishman. Another HMI was credited with this elaborate interrogatory. Question, what is that island called, which from its name you would suppose contained neither women nor children? Answer, please, sir, the Silly Isles. 
Enough for the unexpected. Constant familiarity with school life gave us a good deal of insight into children's ways. And in many matters, we could calculate their probable course of conduct with the assurance of a weather prophet. We got to know also what a thin wall separates mischief from hooliganism and the latter from crime. In the poorer districts, we dealt with children to whom the wall was a transparent veil. In the best districts, and the remark is equally true of the great public schools, there is a very thin crust over the volcano. From Monday to Friday between 9 a.m. and 4.30 p.m., conduct is exemplary. The Roman poet dreamt of the return of Saturnia Regna, and the British schoolboy dreams of what he will do when Saturday comes again. But every evening, school discipline is suspended, and the home resumes its influence. You mustn't be too hard on these children, Mr. Kindersley, said a wise manager of poor school to me. After leaving here, they don't hear a decent word till tomorrow morning. Then there is Sunday school, and the animal gets the upper hand. Gratter la colère, et trouveau la colère, dit dimanche. It was only second hand, and perhaps from seeing the wreckage on Monday morning, that we got to know what boy without cane is like. Of later years, the sabbatical revels have been extended to weeknights, under the names of Bands of Hope and Boys' Brigades, Caneless Boy has had many happy hours. We used to read in the school log books, November 14th, meeting a Band of Hope here last night, two desks wrecked, maps pulled down, and a picture broken. November 20th, meeting a Boys' Brigade here last night, found the floor strewn with matches and cigarette ends, maps pulled down, etc., some Oxford men of the early 60s may remember a famous Horatio Procuratoria of the Reverend J. Riddell, honored name to all Balliol men. Speaking of the conduct of undergraduates at concerts, he lamented that men, who at other times are perfectly well conducted, when they appear at these meetings, nulla reverentia prepetiri, human strepicunti attentis. Barbarorum mori oledantes. Promiscue tumultuantur. Who shall say that Latin is a dead language? Once in a boys' school where discipline was not rigidly enforced, I was imploring the first class not to drown my voice with their conversation while I was examining the adjacent class, and the rector's wife, who was looking on, whispered to me, Mr. Kennesley, do tell me, do we really think they are disorderly now? Very disorderly, I said. Dear me, she said, you should see them on a Sunday. It is not always easy for a stranger to decide whether a baddish-seeming boy has really overtopped the line, which separates seeming from being. Such as one's mother came to me one day to consult me about her gem, and for what she told me, I went to the schoolmaster for further information. What do you think of James X? Well, sir, he is not a bad sort of a boy, but he is... Er, er. I broke into his relief. His mother says he is a ronk. The master jumped at it. That's exactly what he is, sir. He's ronk. This was in the Midlands, 
and the word when spelt rank is Shakespearean. In Cheshire, the positive ronk is not used, but the comparative or superlative is gallus, which in French is pindard. But ronk is a low mark for character, and when the country school board presented as candidates for pupil teachership three boys so ronk that their last examination had been in the police court on a charge of arson, I thought that the bounds of charitable construction had been passed. Certainly their offense was rank. Nor did I think the clerk's plea that there was nothing else you could put them to, a sufficient excuse. I would not dwell on the proved fact that they could neither spell nor do a sum. Choir boys have an established reputation for wrongness. I was told of an example in my district of that date. A number of them had been out for a Saturday afternoon expedition into the country. Returning on foot, they found themselves dead beat, some way from home, and they had no money for rail or tram fares. The leader on the Descartes side, he who sings up to A and dies of consumption, young with soft music, solved the difficulty. He went to the nearest house and rang the doorbell. Full of fictitious strength, they ran for a hundred yards, another ring and another run and so on to Capo Elfini. I wonder whether he was a wrong boy who discomfited the butcher. It is often charged against our schools that they do not give a practical education, equipping a boy to fight the battle of life. But the lamb of my flock, of whom I am thinking, was a remarkable proof to the contrary. The butcher had advertised in Monday's paper for a smart lad. That same morning, a candidate applied. What name, age, been to the board school, pasture standards, what's four eights? Ah, and seven eights, fifty-six, good. Seem a smart lad, got a character, at home, how long to get it? Twenty minutes, run and get it, and if it's all right, I'll put you on in the morning. Thus the butcher, in ten minutes, the smart lad returned. Got back already? You are a smart lad. Thought you said it would take twenty minutes, and you're back in ten. The smart lad grinned. It'd take me twenty minutes to get my character, but I got yours in ten, and I ain't coming. Good morning. These veritable histories I see on looking back are almost wholly concerned with boys and infants. Where are the girls? It was constantly impressed upon me by ladies interested in schools, that I, as a mere man, was wholly unfit to be entrusted with the inspection of girls in infant schools. It was even thrown in my teeth that I, being a miserable old bachelor, could know nothing about children of any kind. This was the argument of Constance, King John, Act Three, Scene Four, to the Cardinal. He talks to me that never had a son. Footnote. And so Macduff. He has no children. Macbeth, Act 4, Scene 4. End of footnote. And this was the view of Mrs. Gamp when she contemplated the unconscious Chuffy. Dread the old creature, said the skilled practitioner. He's a-laying down the law tolerable confident, too. A deal he knows of sons or daughters, either. The taunt of inexperience is applied to others besides school inspectors. 
a clerical bachelor friend of mine found a woman in his parish feeding her three-month-old baby on kippered herring and tea. He remonstrated, and she turned indignantly upon him. I should think I'd ought to know more about babies than you, seeing as I've buried seven of them. Paradis credetum est in artis sua. Now, I should be loath to assert that I know anything about children. Someone in Sophocles, I think it was a chorus in the Antigone, remarked that, of all weird things in nature, man is the weirdest, and by reason of his unexpectedness, child is weirder than man. But comparing my ignorance with female ignorance of child, I do not see that I have any natural disqualification by reason of sex. And when my critic has been a maiden lady, it has been difficult to repress the obvious repartee. I might add that so strong are the chains of custom that these critics, if they wished to crush me by an appeal to authority, would bring forward none but the names of men. In French, it has been unkindly remarked, Ange is always masculine, Bette always feminine. There is no Belange, no Bette Noir. And so, writer on school method is always masculine. This should be seen to. Lancaster, Bell, Pestodotzi, Furble, Herbert Spencer, are there no sheep prophets? If man marks the earth with ruin, his control should stop short of girls' schools. Far be it from me to dispute the point here. It may be on account of this inability to understand girl that I have only one anecdote in stock for my 50,000 daughters. The squire's wife at Exhurst is not pleased with the manners of the girls, since that Miss A took charge of the school. The other day Her Excellency met Mary Hodge in the lane and did not meet with due reverence. She went on to Mrs. Hodge's cottage and made complaint. I met Mary in the lane just now, and she didn't curtsy to me, and I do think, etc., etc. Well, ma'am, said Mrs. Hodge deprecatingly, you see, curtsying's gone out now. But if you'd a slope to our Mary, I'm sure she'd a slope to you. Dear girls, I have no stories to tell of them, but though they did not lend themselves to humorous treatment, they were very delightful, and there was not one among the whole 50,000 who would have changed me for Tabitha Brown or Priscilla Jones or Minerva Robinson. End of section 17. Some things never change, do they? <laughs> it was, there is an, an attribution um, to Socrates by Plato that is very difficult to pin down an original quote for, but it's, it's off-repeated. Um, and, and, in this, in this quote, Socrates says, um, The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in places of exercise. The children are now tyrants, not servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents. They chat in front of company. They eat cakes at the table. 
they cross their legs and they tyrannize their teachers. And this is attributed to um, around 469 to 399 BC. So even way back in classical times, we were having the complaint that, you know, children are not what they used to be. They are not as polite anymore. They are not as deferential anymore. And then we hear that from the late 1800s, early 1900s. You know, the girls are not curtsying to me. The boys are talking when I'm trying to teach them. And then we have the same, the same complaints these days. And it occurs to me that we look back on these these halcyon days of children paying attention, children listening, children being reverential, which apparently never actually existed. So we are looking back, we're nostalgic for these times that never happened. And we keep trying to make our children conform to these, these standards that never actually existed for them. And it makes me wonder, I suppose, like the technology, that I was talking about at the top of the show. Why do we keep fighting these things? Why do we keep harking back for a time that never existed? When in fact, what we could do is think a bit more carefully about what we actually have in our classrooms, about how children actually behave, as opposed to how we think they should behave, and then begin to work on it that way instead of just lamenting the fact that children are not as good as they used to be, our classes are not as well behaved as we were at school, um, when in fact they never have been, because children have always been children. People generally don't change. We see that if we look back through history. Um, I also, on that same, that same topic, think it's interesting that our inspector was told that he was not fit to inspect girls uh, and that really he was not fit to inspect children because he didn't have any. And as a teacher who does not have children, as a teacher who has no intention of having children, um, that is something that I've heard quite a lot, not as abruptly um, because people generally don't speak to each other like that anymore, which again is quite interesting because if you think about the Victorian era, the um, the the stereotype is that it was one of gentility and manners, whereas those those quotes that we heard were very, very abrupt. Um, but I have had it insinuated to me, particularly when I was a younger teacher, uh, that because I didn't have children, I didn't understand them, and that the the teachers who had children of their own were in fact better teachers because they understood children better than I did. And it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I do understand why those people would think that. I do understand why they think that parenthood would give them an edge uh, when it came to understanding children. But I also think it's dangerous to say that you understand children because children are individuals. The 34 children in your class are 34 people. They are not a homogenous lump just because they are children. They are different to the children that you have at home. And your relationship with them is different, I would hope. Because in the classroom, we are not their parents. We are their teachers. And at home, you are not their teacher. You are their parent. So I would, I would say 
the while being a parent gives a different experience of being around children it's not necessarily one that would transfer over to teaching and of course you know that's just my view of uh, as somebody who who doesn't have children of his own but it is interesting to me that when we look back in the history of teaching i do find this this topic fascinating there are things that just don't change there are complaints that are made year on year and clearly have been for hundreds of years that just don't get fixed and it makes me wonder why why are we so keen to kind of hold on to uh so many of these criticisms so many of these negativities um why do we not do anything to try and make it right to try and make it better well, i don't have an answer for that i don't but that is a a really interesting book i kind of i enjoyed my my reading of it my exploration of it if you are interested to read the book as a whole it is available freely online because it is now out of copyright um, it is available on the project gutenberg website so you can always look it up if you're interested in understanding more about what it was to be an inspector back during the victorian era i don't think that being an inspector is an easy task i think it must be very difficult it's not a job that i would like to do at all because i think where the um where the onus these days seems to be on finding room for improvement instead of finding things that went well as it was in the 1840s um when the hmi particularly up in scotland became a thing uh, i think that would be i think that would be really hard because i think we all know that the vast majority of teachers 99.9 percent .9 of teachers are always doing their best at every moment and i think it must be really difficult for your whole job these days to be going in and saying well actually this isn't good enough improve it um particularly if you are limited on the advice that you are allowed to give to help with improvements so with the inspectorate as it currently is that's not a job that i envy um it's not a job that i think i would be very good at um i think if the the emphasis changed and i think if it became about identifying what schools do well and making suggestions for improvement and and proffering ways to improve um you know i think if after an inspection if behavior for example were found to be an issue and the inspectors then said well we've got an inspector who is a behavior specialist she will come in and work with you um as part of your cpd i think that would be different and i think that would be an interesting job because i think that anything about making education better is interesting um but yeah as it is it seems to be that the emphasis is on the wrong thing and it should be about praising schools for what they do and finding ways to make them better instead of talking about the wrong things that are being done and in some ways let's be honest that's the same thing i think it's a lot of it is just about how it's framed and how it's phrased because as we know language is powerful 
and the way that you use language to frame something, the way that you use language to phrase something can have a bigger impact quite often than we expect. That is us done for today. Thank you very much for everybody who has listened live today, for everyone who has interacted with the show, for everyone who has left us a like on Podbean. I very much appreciate it. Do stay tuned. We have a packed weekend as we always do this week. Um, over the weekend, we have got, uh, I'm just pulling up so that I can make sure I get this right. Uh, we have got Graham at 5pm today. Uh, then tomorrow, Sunday the 18th of June, we have got the weekly review at 10am. Uh, we have got Omar on Twitter Spaces at 11am. And then we've got Maud at 5pm. So please do stay tuned over the weekend for more interesting shows. And of course, throughout the week, I will be back with you next Saturday for our penultimate Saturday morning breakfast before I take my short summer break. Have yourselves a great weekend and I will speak to you all soon. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.